0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey guys, it's Dr. Rob. How great is it today that I can bring you another person that I admire who actually does some uh, volunteering on one of our websites so I get to hear some of his work. And I have to say I'm a big fan, so let me lay this out for you. Troy Love. Who is an author? In fact, his third book, A Year of Self Love, was just published in 2019. Troy L. Love is on a quest to help individuals, couples, and organizations find greater peace, joy, and success. Now, Troy serves as the president and clinical director of Yuma Counseling. That means he's in Arizona, and the founder of Finding Peace Counseling. Oh my goodness, he and I have been in the field. I've, you've been in the field almost as long as me as a social worker. You're younger, but not that much. Mm-hmm. And uh, Troy specializes in really in working with trauma and shame and trauma-related concerns, like couples' relationship struggles, individuals who numb their pain through addiction and compulsive behaviors. And he really works on helping couples find a deeper connection. Welcome,
1: Troy. Thank you so much, Rob. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, I love working with you, and I love the fact that you 're doing work um, volunteering on the sites and and you're writing. I guess a good question to start off with anyone is why trauma, why these issues you know we all kind of find our way to things naturally. how do you did you find your strength in this area of therapy?
1: Well, when I was in social work school, my professor told me, troy, if I really wanted to be a better social worker, I needed to do my own work, and that was what, 23 years old, and I was in a lot of denial about that. I didn't think I had any work that I needed to do. I thought I was fine. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I I went uh, to Pittsburgh and got my master's in social work. And as I was sitting in my internship at Gateway Rehab, working with individuals who were struggling with alcoholism, a drug addiction, and they started to tell me their stories, the more I realized, I can relate to you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. (laughs) Yep. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that I had a sex addiction myself. Mm. And that sent me on a quest to figure out how, what is this all about? And uh, it sent me on a journey to really start to do my own healing. And in the process of doing that, I, I just began to put a model in my head to help me understand what was really going on with me. And as I started to share that with other clients, they were like, where can I learn more about that? And that that's where the model came from that I use in the Finding Peace workbook.
0: So without asking you too much about your personal life, because I don't think that's really the point, and in fact, I know it's not the point, but your experience is. And I guess what I'm wondering is, by the way, this, the social work, nobody will relate to this, I have to tell you this. When I went to UCLA and I was in social work school and I was in my 30s at that point, but the people who were just gone to regular college and then had got on to get a social work degree and were like 23, we called you Green Peas.
1: Yep. <laughs>
0: Green peas. Cause you were just out of the pod and you had not really, you know, and so there you right. are, I guess at 23, like, Oh, I'm, I've been trained and I'm ready to handle this. And boom, you run right into yourself. So my question is in a general way, how long do you think it took this is good for people to know? How long do you think it took you to get a handle around what had happened to you? What you, you yourself were struggling with the things you ran into. I mean, where would you say from 23 to what did you feel like, okay, I think this is fairly stable. I understand where I'm at. I understand where it came from. And I'm kind of have a foundation to move
1: forward. I don't want to frighten people, but it took a really long time. (laughs) Um, It took a, a solid, I moved from Pittsburgh to Yuma, Arizona, which is in the middle of nowhere. So I moved to a place where there were no resources. And so it probably took me a whole lot longer than it would take for most people.
0: Well, wait a minute. You said you're... You said you're frightened, so I'm going to assume that that means it was longer than anyone would like. Oh yeah. And you're saying that it has something to do with Yuna, Yuma, sorry, Yuma, Arizona, and I'm thinking maybe you were just more screwed up than most people.
1: <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, it took it took uh, it took ten years of really hard work. Um, mm-hmm. I found a therapist and I did that. Um, but still, even today, I'm still working. I mean, there's still stuff that I have to look at, and that, I think that's part of growing. Well, this is a process, not a
0: destination, right? Exactly, right. So you've got your crap together, more or less, and you took it on the road. You were already a professional. So I'm imagining, you know, you say it took 10 years, but I bet every day along the way, you were a better therapist, you were a better spouse, you were, you know, it's not like in 10 years, you were this. Every day you became better, more aware. And I'm not, I imagine 10 years wasn't the absolute magic destination point. It's just looking back, that's where you feel you were really had your gained your strength.
1: Right. Yeah. There was a lot of legwork during those 10 years to really find a place where I felt grounded enough to then move forward and help other people without my own stuff getting in the way.
0: And I don't think you're saying that you acted out sexually for 10 years after you figured this out. I think what you're saying is, and that might lead us into our topic, is that you saw the the sexual behavior or whatever other addictions you have as kind of the the top of the tip of the iceberg, the leading edge. And once you push that aside, I think that's where most of the 10 years are, not necessarily in stopping addiction, but more coming to terms with who you are and how you got there.
1: Um, Exactly.
0: Right. And why did shame become such a big focus of your work? I know that it is, and I know you've written about it. So um, in fact, you run a shame group, I'm going to just say this, uh, once, what, on the fourth Wednesday of every month, you run a group for shame on sex and relationship healing. And that's like a webinar where you're teaching people. So what are you teaching about shame? What do I need to learn?
1: Well, shame is absolutely, especially when we're working with addicts, is absolutely interwoven with the numbing behaviors, with the acting out behaviors. And the more that I study it, the more that I realize it's actually the driving force of our addictive behaviors. And when we can start to tackle shame and we can unravel that, oftentimes the addictive behaviors fall by the wayside because it's not as powerful because we're really understanding what the addictive behaviors have always been, which is to numb the pain of what we've been experiencing, whether those are attachment wounds or whether it's shame, both of those play a role in that. But when we start to unravel the shame and find healing for that, the numbing isn't as necessary.
0: And as a sex addict and working with sex addicts, I think part of what I know is that we have so much shame when we're acting out. That when we stop and the shame is still there, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. I thought this was directly tied to my behavior. Why do I feel unworthy, unlovable, and broken as a person beyond the behavior? And it's interesting, by the way, that you say shame maintains the addiction because in that way it does. I hate myself, but the only way I can feel better about hating myself is acting out. And so it really is a cycle.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when I finally got into a period of sobriety and the numbing behavior stopped, the the shame rose its head so, so fiercely.
0: Tell me what you mean by shame and what came up for you so I can help, as long as it relates to everyone else, what do you think this is or what did it feel like?
1: Brene Brown describes or defines shame as the deep and abiding belief or experience that I'm flawed and defective and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Mm -hmm. And so once I stop the numbing, All I felt was I was unworthy. I'm unworthy. I'm bad. I messed up. I've I've ruined, uh, ruined my marriage. I've ruined all of these things. And I'm angry about all of the pain that I was numbing for so long. And I became a very, very angry person during that time. So I wasn't acting out anymore. But man, I was still causing damage. And it was still fueled by the shame.
0: My interpretation of that would be shame is kind of anger turned inwards. And when you stop being angry at yourself, if you haven't fully handled it, you might start biting at people around you.
1: Yeah, pushing them away uh, unintentionally, subconsciously, because I don't feel that I'm worthy of your love. I don't feel like I'm worthy of your acceptance. And so I'm going to find ways to push you away, even though that's not accurate. I am worthy and they love me. But,
0: you know, when I'm acting out, so to speak, I don't feel that I'm worthy. And I talk about this a lot. Like if I was with my spouse in the afternoon and we were having a great time and my spouse was saying, oh, I love you. You're so great. I love our time together. But that morning I'd been in a strip club, even though they were giving me all this love and filling the needs that everybody wants to have filled, I wouldn't be able to take that in because of shame. I would say to myself, well, I don't deserve this if they knew what I was doing. But once that passes, and I'm no longer hiding, and I no longer have secrets, I agree with you. We are just still filled with shame. What is that about?
1: Well, it, for me, I've really identified that it goes back to what I've said before, which is the attachment wounds. And that's, that's really where the source of our addiction started, I believe.
0: Okay, now I, I just have to say, I don't know that everyone will know what an attachment wound is, so maybe you could explain that.
1: Sure. We are wired for connection. As humans, we're wired neurologically, socially, spiritually, physically. We're wired to be connected to each other. And when those connections break in one way or another, that is an attachment wound. And I've identified six of them. So there's loss, neglect, rejection, abandonment, betrayal, and abuse. And so especially as children... But it also can happen when we're adults, Um, especially as children. When we live in imperfect families, we live with imperfect people who behave in ways that end up causing these wounds of rejection or abandonment or abuse or whatever. Those can run really deep. And then what we end up identifying as a result of those wounds is we develop negative core beliefs that get wired into our nervous system. I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. I can't trust other people.
0: That's the voice of a child saying, I'm not getting what I need and so I've kind of given up on it and I'm going to live the rest of my life not really believing that I'm worth it because that's what I learned when I was little. And little kids don't look up and say, oh, well, mom's a drunk and dad is fooling around. And that's why my needs aren't getting met. Young children say it must be my fault. And addicts, by the way, carry that around their whole lives. That's why we don't reach out for help. That's why we isolate. That's why we turn to substances and behaviors, because it's easier for us and less emotionally threatening than turning to people, which is what healthy people do. So how do you talk about this with people who are right in the middle of it? Because I know a lot of people I work with, Troy, they, they don't have a clue that in fact they come in and say, I didn't really have any trauma. We always had dinner on the table and you know there were I had clothes on my back and dad walked me to school in in the morning. There wasn't a problem. How do you begin to explain this to people who don't see this in their background?
1: So just the other day I had a client who said the exact same thing. I I don't have any attachment wounds. And then I explained I, I said, Well, okay, here are the wounds, I listed them. And then I said, do any of those resonate with you? And he said, um, well, I know that when I was a kid, I longed for my dad to play ball with me. I wanted him to play ball so badly with me. um, And he wouldn't, but he would spend two to three hours at the gym. He could bench press 300 pounds, but he wouldn't spend 10 minutes with me. And so we identified, well, that's the neglect wound. And the moment I labeled it, man, he just tears rolling down his face. And he began to identify, oh my gosh, I do have this wound that has been there for so long. And what have I ended up believing about myself is I'm just not worthy of your attention. I, I don't matter to you.
0: Right. And I do want to say one thing. You said the word imperfect parents, and I think all parents are imperfect. I think what you're talking about is p- parents who are very wounded and can't get away from their wounds and end up passing those wounds on in their relationship with their children. Because, I mean, perfect parents, I don't know any perfect parents. Imperfect parents are actually a good thing, but deeply wounded, broken parents
1: are, are not. Right. And so what happens within his belief of, I I must not be worthy, is then he found ways to prove to himself that he was enough addiction, whatever.
0: I think what you're saying, I want to make this clearer: is that when the man or woman, when the person has no place to go with their shame and they run into situations that most people would turn to people or get comforted by, they don't do that they isolate and they turn to addiction is that kind of what you wanted to say yeah or is that what just what i'm saying
1: well so when when these wounds and i use the analogy of sunburns okay so when you're sunburned you can still function you can still go to work you can do whatever you need to do but you really hope that nobody comes up and touches you because if they do it's going to hurt and that's what these attachment wounds are like They never healed. So this, for example, this kid, um, his neglect wound never healed and it's gotten bigger and bigger. And every time now that he's married and he feels like his wife is pulling away from him or his friends are pulling away from him, it's like they just rubbed up against that sunburn and then there's an immediate reaction. And it's usually the flight or flight response. I'm either going to pull away or I'm going to get very angry. So it's that wound. And then that wound becomes so painful that I got to find a way to numb it. I'm not going to go do wound care, because I don't even maybe even acknowledge the wound exists, but it hurts so bad i got to go find a way to numb it. And that's where our brain then begins to learn, well, oh, this addiction really made this wound not hurt so bad for a minute. Oh, that worked really well. And then the addiction begins to be wired into the brain.
0: And that actually, I would say, may even come earlier, when I learned to dissociate and space out and use fantasy as a means of supporting myself instead of people in childhood, I mean, addictions are really about fantasy and losing yourself in something that isn't real. So it almost seems like a lifelong habit that's learned early in life when I'm not getting something to blame myself and then kind of go somewhere else in my head that makes me feel better. But Troy, if that starts at really young in childhood, does anyone really ever get over it?
1: Do they fix it? I don't think you or me would be doing our job if we didn't believe that healing was possible. I used to work in the hospital, and I I loved looking at the really nasty wound pictures of people with their nasty wounds. I think that's
0: information we don't want to know about you, but please continue.
1: But I was fascinated, number one, how bad the wounds were. But I also loved listening to the nurses and how they would treat those wounds. And over time, those wounds would get smaller and smaller, and then that person would be healed. And that's really what I look at from an emotional perspective. These wounds can be really big and really painful, but I believe if we do the proper wound care, they can be healed.
0: But the scars remain, right? I mean, we're never fully healed. We can never go back and be two or three again and get what we didn't get then. There'll always be, I think, this feeling of longing or needfulness or or fear, or like you said, fear. I mean, those things kind of haunt us all our lives, but we can really turn down the volume.
1: Right, and it's, it's very similar to when the sunburn finally goes away. If somebody bumps up against you, it, there's not that deep reaction. It's like, oh, you just invaded my space, maybe, but it's not that fight or flight response anymore.
0: You write about this, and you kind of wrote a book about really about shame and early attachment wounds. What what is that book, and how do you use it in helping people?
1: So the book is uh, it's a workbook. It's called Find the Finding Peace Workbook.
0: Finding Peace, great.
1: Yes, and the center of the model is a yin and yang, and on one side is pain, and the other side is peace, and we we really, I I think for most of us, we would really like to live in a world where there wasn't any pain and there wasn't any suffering. And unfortunately, that's not the reality. And sometimes the pain helps us to be able to find peace. We can use it as a way to be able to go to the place of peace. Oh, pain
0: can produce tremendous change and positive effects. In fact, some people don't grow unless they go through the pain.
1: Exactly. And so they have to go together as much as I think we would love for them not to. They have to go together. So the pain is, you know, for me is uh, associated with those attachment wounds, but I can also then find peace, I can find meaning, I can f- I can rewrite those negative messages that have been written on my nervous system to positive core beliefs so that even when maybe my rejection wound is bumped, Instead of immediately connecting with, oh, I'm bad, I'm no good, there's something wrong with me, saying, well, you know what, I think I'm enough, and maybe that person is having some hard time with themselves, and it helps me show up with empathy and compassion, and I'm able to own my stuff without shame, and that, that's really what the model is. How do we move into that place of peace, even though pain still might be occurring?
0: And kind of what you're talking about a little bit is narcissism in the sense of the world is about me and I see it the way I want to see it. I don't have a lot of empathy and compassion probably for myself or others. That's very much like an addict. And it's interesting because a lot of people say, and I don't think they're right, narcissism can't be healed, narcissism can't be grown from. Most of the narcissistic traits I see come out of trauma and attachment wounds. It's that person saying, I'm so important and special
1: because they felt so
0: unimportant and so not special when they were growing up.
1: Exactly. If you think about somebody who maybe has had a heart attack or um, that's somebody who got in a car accident and they're in the hospital for a really long time as a healing, there's a lot of attention mm-hmm. being played to them and they're in pain. So in that, you, you could say, well, you're just narcissistic. You're just worried about yourself. But no, well, my appendix hurts. <laughs> right. But really, the pain has, uh, when we're in pain, of course, we are focused on ourselves. We're trying to mm-hmm. figure out a way to relieve the suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, we get stuck there. And then that can be, uh, you know, narcissistic in nature. Mm-hmm. But really, when we start to heal it, we, we develop that place of, it's not all about me. Like that, you know, there's big there's more to this world than just me. But in the pain, that's all we focus on. It's all about me.
0: I think what I'm hearing you say is that I cannot have true compassion and empathy for others if I dismiss my own pain. If I just say, Oh, well, mom wasn't around and dad was busy and it must be my fault that they didn't pay more attention to me, then I can never really understand others' pain because I'm dismissing my own. Is that part of what you're saying?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's that expression that says, you can't love other people until you love yourself. And I wrestled with that for a long time because I thought I was a very loving individual. But as I sat with that for a while, I finally realized, well, I can love other people. But the problem is, as long as I'm stuck in that shameful place, I can't let them love me back. I can't accept their love for me back. And in a way, I then push them away, which exacerbates my own woundedness. But when I can allow myself to do wound care and I can allow that in, they can love me, I can love them, and it becomes this symbiotic, wonderful relationship.
0: Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, seeking integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So I want to bring that down in more concrete terms because I know what you're talking about. And I'm just thinking how much I like to work and how frequently I work and how hard I work. I just, you know, you don't push out 10 books without working hard right? it's in your free time and your work time. But what that has left me with over the years is when people say, I had a really long day. Or I'm really tired. I just look at them like you're tired. You had a long day because I don't have compassion for how I don't take the time out to nurture myself to take time out to take that day. Out. I mean, I do more now, but because I was so driven and felt that's what I needed to do, there wasn't a lot of room for anybody who wasn't as driven as me in my world because they should be working hard, too. Meanwhile, I had people who were spending weekends with family. (laughs) They were going and enjoying an evening with their grandkids. Whatever. I'm sitting and working and saying, what's wrong with you that you're enjoying your life? That sort of feels like what you're talking about. Like If I couldn't give myself a break, then in fact, I'm not going to be at all passionate toward others. I'm going to shut them out.
1: Part of what I do in the workbook is I I talk about shame, but I personify it. I've created six different characters of shame that then show up and start talking to us and as you you're sharing that example of that i'm driven and i have to i i then would say and if i was working with someone like that okay so which shadows of shame have just shut up for you what are they saying why are they saying that and it actually helps us be able to break apart and and dismantle the lies that shame tells us
0: so is this a voice of abandonment is this the voice of neglect is that kind of what you're saying
1: well, so I'll give you the one that's usually the loudest for most people is the judge, and it's that inner critic voice that tells you that you're not enough and you're not perfect enough and you need to try harder. And what's wrong with you that you're not trying harder? And I can't believe you failed.
0: Try. I think I have Judge duty Just to say it, I think that's my <laughs> inner judge. I'm pretty sure of it. Um, but please continue. No, I, I love it. That's what I
1: have them do. I say, imagine what that. That voice looks like Judge Judy or whatever. Imagine now. Imagine that 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 voice is sitting across from you, from on the couch, and it's having a conversation, and it's shaming you. Do you go along with it? Do you say, "Oh, you're right." Oh my gosh. Or do you say, "No, I don't want to. I don't want to listen to you." And it begins. It gives them an opportunity to step away from the voice and start to challenge it a little bit.
0: But can an active addict do that? Because I am constantly giving myself a reason if I'm an active addict for that judge to stand up and say, well, see, here you go being a loser again. Look what you just did. So how do you find a voice for that as you're recovering imperfectly? Or do you have to be totally sober to start to look at this? Or what are your thoughts?
1: No, and a- absolutely an active addict can do that. And so, you know, I, I sit with them. Okay, what is it saying? Well, you failed. I mean, you, you, you could only last for 24 hours. What's freaking wrong with you? That you could, you know, you can even keep it together for... And then we separate that. Who does that sound like? What does that remind you of? Is there anything that we could do to challenge that a little bit? And if we also look at, well, why is the judge there? Well, the judge has this belief. It's inaccurate. But the judge has this belief that if I can perfect you, You won't be rejected anymore. You won't be neglected anymore. You won't be abandoned anymore. So if I can just make you perfect, you won't be hurt. And that can apply to the
0: physical, like someone saying, "I've got to be absolutely, you know, the right size, this, the right body for that." It can show
1: perfectionism that way can show up in a lot of ways. Right, and then we challenge, well, you know, that that's not reality. There's some wonderful, beautiful people on this planet who have done amazing things, and they've still been rejected. They've still been abandoned. So that that isn't. That's not an accurate belief system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's challenge that a little bit, and let's douse you with some love and some compassion rather than some judgment. Love. <laughs> well, it is weird that I was it's born okay. on Valentine's Day and my last name is Love. But that no, it's that's, perfect, right? So, but yeah, it's instead of beating yourself up with the judge telling you how much you suck. Let's try some empathy and see if that maybe changes your desire to act out. Maybe that helps you um, reach out a little bit better, going to a meeting, reaching out, because your judge is going to tell you not to. But maybe with love and compassion and just even a little bit of hope that somebody will love on me if I tell my stuff, that's the process of raking that shame apart. And if you
0: don't mind, just briefly, what are some of the other characters you've got to judge? Who else have you got?
1: Uh, Another one that's really loud for people is the impotent one. And the impotent one is like this whiny voice that just tells you you can't. You can't. So the words that the impotent one uses are always and never. You're never going to get any better. I don't even know why you bother. It's always going to be this way. It, no one's ever going to show up for you. Just that that whiny, like lots of black and
0: white thinking.
1: Very much so. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes you put those two together and they're tag teaming. Well, you're not perfect enough. And yeah, and you're never going to get any better. Well, whew, no wonder why I'm going to go out and use this is awful, right?
0: So are you saying in a way, and, and just to, before we go back to more voices, that having this part of you inside of you and having had these losses in early life doesn't offer a lot of hope to people for things to be different?
1: No, um, they they lie. They just they just shame you all day long. That's not very hopeful, right? But we got to shine light on them. We got to call them out. And in the, back in the day, I would have said, you know, cast them out. But now I've realized, okay, you've you're actually here because you're trying to help me. The way you're helping is not that helpful, but let me thank you. Let me offer gratitude. Thank you so much for your trying to help me. That's not the way that I'm going to do it, but I appreciate that. Every time I've taught a client to do that, it silences the voices for a little while. They're like, oh, really? You're thanking me? Okay. And then they're there. And now I have the space to go reach out, connect, do all the things that I need to do to actually heal those uh, wounds, address those wounds, get my needs met in healthy ways.
0: Well, in the most basic way, you're talking about how addicts heal. I mean, I have to move from, you know, I'm an awful person. How could I have done this to, oh, I'm kind of a broken person that had a lot of bad things happen to me. And I kind of don't know any better. And therefore, I can forgive myself because I have a whole new set of learning to do. Because a bad person, we can't really help bad people, but people who've made mistakes who want to grow, we can help those people. But what you're talking about is getting
1: them there. Shining light on those stories, challenging them, helping them see that they're actually not true, gives them hope that, oh, and especially when we personify them and put them across the room, I actually then have a place where, wow, you know what? I don't have to be hijacked by you anymore. I can do something, I can talk to you, I can question, I can ask, instead of just saying, oh, yep, you're right, you're right, you're you're, you're right. I
0: have two thoughts for you. One is, um, well, actually, this is a good one. I'll start with this. You know, a lot of times the people that we're working with, whatever their addictive problems, but most often love, sex, and intimacy, porn, they come in and they say, well, my spouse or partner is so angry and, you know, because they've been found out and and you know spouses i've written books about this like out of the doghouse it's very hard for spouses to heal and very difficult for someone who's very shame based to even fully understand the pain of their spouse or what they need to do to heal it because they don't forgive themselves But the challenge is, you know, I'm working with someone like you to reduce their shame, to build a relationship with the parts of themselves that feel make them feel inadequate and unworthy and to feel like a stronger, more proud person. But then they go home and their spouse says, you're a piece of shit. You ruined my life. I can't believe you did these things to me. And they have every right to feel that way because of what's happened to them. So how do you balance someone holding on to these little green shoots of healing when they go home and they have a understandably furious spouse who certainly doesn't want them to forgive themselves because they don't want them to ever be forgiven. They're
1: so hurt. How do you
0: balance those things?
1: In part, when, when I'm working with a spouse, I help them understand that you just have a huge betrayal wound that just got opened up. Maybe it existed when you were little and it got reopened, or maybe it's brand new. But with every wound, there is a negative core belief attached to that. So the betrayal wound, what is it that they end up believing? Well, I wasn't enough. I wasn't enough for you.
0: I wasn't worth staying with. I wasn't attractive enough. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And then that's where the shame shows up for them. And then they, they behave in their ways of trying to prove that they are enough in, a, in unhealthy ways, too. So helping them kind of understand, like, look, I get that you are really hurting. Let's challenge what you are end up believing about yourself, too. And in the process, trying to help them both see that the other person is wounded I mean, and you, you identified it's really hard to be able to go home. I'm already shaming myself, and then I come home, and that spouse is so mad at me. Yes, it's so hard. And part of that, I'm like, I remember going to a presentation with where you spoke, and I'm like, well, you got in the doghouse for a reason. Like, you got to own some of your behavior for a little bit, and 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 just know that as long as you can start doing your work and you can create some empathy and some space, it creates a place for the wife or the spouse to also begin to heal as well. And and they now, if I'm being heard and acknowledged, my pain level is going to go down a little bit. I'm going to be more open and tolerant to listening to where you come from. But oftentimes I think the guy is so, or the the addict is so stuck in their own shame that they don't have space for empathy. And that's really fueling the betrayal of the partner.
0: You know, it's funny when I, worked in treatment centers, listening to you talk, I was thinking one of my jobs early on was to buy the teddy bears for the unit. You know, I had to buy, I had to go to the toy store because everyone, you know, everyone in treatment needs something to hug when they're sad. And one of the teddy bears I bought was really like this mean looking alligator with spikes and it just wasn't a happy looking cuddly. And I would walk in on, and the guys would be throwing it around the room and throwing it at the wall and saying, well, this is my addict and screw them. And it's the ugly one. This is the one to hurt me. And I'd have to go in and say, well, wait a minute. Isn't the person is isn't this addict, the one who helped you survive emotionally? Shouldn't you maybe consider instead of knocking him around, building a relationship with him, being grateful that even though he may have ruined your adult life, he certainly helped you survive. And also maybe the desire to use and act out and drink isn't a message to act out, use, and drink. Maybe it's that part of you that's saying, Pay attention to me, notice
1: me, I'm important, but we shove it aside. The Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, I don't know if I ever am saying his name right, um, he did an interview with Oprah and he talks about the four mantras. And one of the mantras is, Darling, I suffer. And you're looking at your partner and um, they're looking at each other. And then the, the mantra in return is, Darling, I know that you suffer, I am here for you. And I've, I've had couples in my office try that where they sit. And it's what was interesting is oftentimes the spouse is like, my suffering is so intense that I can't bear to look at your suffering. I can't hold space for your suffering. And I'm like, that is where the dilemma is then because it's breaking down your ability to connect and actually provide soothing healing for each other because you cannot hold the other person's suffering. And Shema is what makes that happen. And unravels
0: that. Troy, I I have a lot of guests on. You know, I've probably done about 80 shows or something like that. But I have to say this is one of the clearest depictions that I've heard of what the healing process is for someone who's wounded beyond working on addiction. And you really touch me with the concept that we have to build a loving relationship with ourselves, every part of ourselves, even the imperfect broken ones, or we're not going to be able to go forward in a way that's healthy. And that's almost counterintuitive to an addict. You know, I, I feel like I've had so many patients say, I need to be beaten up. I need to be thrown against the wall. I need you to really, you know, show me how horrible I am. So I won't do this anymore. And, you know, that is the natural instinct on some level, but it's the opposite of where they need to go.
1: It doesn't work. You look at the attachment wounds of rejection and abandonment, for example. Every time that I allow the the judge to bully me, every time I do that, I'm rejecting myself, which makes the wound bigger. I have to use compassion and love to heal that wound. Otherwise, I'm stuck in that cycle. So compassion and love and empathy is the only way out. In, in my opinion, of healing these wounds and healing the, the addiction and reaching out and letting people love on you and you loving them. It's the only way out. Otherwise, we're trapped in that pain forever and ever.
0: And there is no way around. I'll just put the pain
1: aside and do my best. Yeah, that's denial. That works really well. <laughs> it's a try. <laughs> it, it, it's a way of numbing, and I get it. And yeah, you're right. It won't work because the your pain will continue to show up and say, you got to take care of me. I need you to tend to my wounds here.
0: So uh, I guess I have a question for the general person who's listening, because not everyone for sure ever makes it to therapy. Some people, you know, they can't afford it. They don't have the resources. They may never get there or the resources that are uh, offered to them are really not adequate. So, you know, you and I, uh, we're privileged. We went to school, we went to graduate school, we had the resources or the insurance or cash to pay for a lot of therapy and grow. And as you said, it's a long process. What do you say to the person who might get six sessions and that's the best they can do and they're going to 12-step means or they're getting support from their family, how do they heal these deep wounds without a guide like you or me? Or can they?
1: I have a buddy who wrote the introduction of the Finding Peace book, He says, maybe you don't have access to a therapist. Maybe you can't afford it. But how about you get this and you get a group of people together and you do it together? And I have actually talked to some individuals who have done that. They got together and they did the workbook together, start a book group, you know, pick a book. It doesn't have to be mine, but uh, find a way to maybe do that. With the whole COVID-19 thing, it's really opened, I think, our eyes to identify there are other ways to connect besides in-person, we can use Zoom meetings, whatever. But I guess what I would say to that person is, number one, I know what that feels like when I was living in a really rural area and I, I, I didn't have anyone. I didn't give up. I kept looking and I found a therapist who could work with me over the phone. I found resources. I found support groups that I could attend that are available. So don't give up. There are places of healing and hope all over the world that can help you with the wound care to help you find peace.
0: And I think that this is one of the reasons that Troy volunteers on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. I mean, we all show up there because we understand that people need it, that we got help and that we got really deep, important help and that other people not be able to ac- may not be able to access it. And that's what the free website is all about. So when do you volunteer uh, regularly? You're there every week, aren't you?
1: Yeah, so I, I have a men's group that runs every Friday morning, and you can go to the, the website and find that. And then on the fourth Wednesday of every month, I also do a, an open webinar where anybody can attend and ask questions. Um, so that's open to women, men, general public, whoever would like to attend and um, open it up for general questions.
0: Troy, I'm impressed with you as I always am. And I guess I just want to finish by saying, how could people who are probably feeling as moved by you as I am, how would they find you? How can they reach out to you, get help with you, read your materials? Are there some websites they could look at?
1: Yeah, the easiest way to find me is going to troyllove.com. And there um, I'm offering a free free five-day finding peace challenge that opens up the introduction to the wounds. And it's just really simple. You get an email from me for five days. Um, it's free. You can go there to the website. You can also get access to the books that I've written and, and other resources that are there. So it's troyllove.com. You're on Amazon too, right? I am on Amazon. Yes. All of the books are available on Amazon.
0: So folks, if you're as impressed with Troy as I am, and I am, please drop by one of the free groups on Sex and Relationship Healing. Please stop by his website. Uh, I, I hate that you got to a website after your name. I think that's so cool. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> Thank you. And I think this is someone that can produce some profound learning if you're willing to sit down and take the time to understand what he has to say. Thank you so much for joining us, Troy. I hope we have you back again because this is a great conversation.
1: Thank you, Robert. It's been wonderful. Thanks.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On seekingintegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at seekingintegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.